Hello, listeners. John Ellis here. This past Monday, we ran a version of my interview with Jane Metcalf, the co-founder of Wired Magazine and the founder of Neo.Life. Today, we're airing the unedited version of that conversation. I introduce Jane in full right up ahead. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast. I'm John Ellis. My guest is Jane Metcalf, the founding editor of Neo.Life and the former president and co-founder of Wired Magazine. Neo.Life is a news site that, quote, asks the big questions about how we're engineering our own evolution. In other words, it covers the convergence of biology and technology. It's a fascinating world full of mind-blowing advances that can almost sound like science fiction. Jane and I spoke about what she learned from launching, running, and eventually selling Wired Magazine. We talked about the genomics revolution and the tools that could someday interface with the human brain. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. Hey, John. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Virtually all of these, we start with, how did you get from there to here? (laughs) So you had a publication called Electric World. You were living in the Netherlands. What happened next? Right. So my partner, Louis Rosetto, and I were based in Amsterdam, and we were publishing a magazine called Electric Word. And the magazine was supported by a, a company that did translation services, but also had software for translators. And so our magazine was supposed to be about the technology for translation, which is a pretty narrow field. And that's a pretty small group of people that are interested in that. And so over the course of the years that we published it, Lewis kept broadening it to include all of the new technologies that were coming down the pike for what we referred to as word workers. And so it was, you know, desktop publishing and character recognition and speech synthesis, and then all the different technologies for archiving and storing and retrieving words. And Lois went to San Francisco to Macworld and, you know, saw not only what the new technologies coming down the pike were, but also met so many of the computer engineers and software engineers that we'd been thinking about and writing about and got to hang out with them and understand what their ideas and visions for the future were and so forth. And realize that, you know, there's so much more going on than we were able to cover if we're only looking at the technology itself. And, you know, it led to a number of extraordinary conversations and exchanges. We began to tap into this whole world of people who had visions for the future, how technology was going to make the world a better place. You know, engineers who wanted to transform education and engineers who wanted to transform design and engineers who wanted to transform business and you know all of these different applications for these tools were le- leading us to all start to look at solving problems using the same toolbox and so it was bringing all these different communities together that wouldn't otherwise have anything in common based on that we started to look at our magazine and think you know we could do something so much bigger with this we could turn this into a lifestyle magazine about how technology is transforming life. And so that's basically how Wired was born. January of 1993 is when we were able to launch the first issue of the magazine. And I remember, you know, got 
written up immediately. We were on CNN. We were on, you know, Good Morning America. We were picked up by airlines and shown, you know, video of, of pre-launch video was shown on transatlantic flights. Hmm. We had this incredible newsstand distribution. I mean, it was just an extraordinary thing that we accomplished with so few resources. It was just an idea whose time had come. And, you know, when we sold Wired, we then got involved in a number of other activities, which ultimately led to another revolution, which is what I call the neobiological revolution. You were saying that you achieved remarkable distribution very quickly and that you had a lot of, I guess you would call it PR, a lot of news coverage of your magazine. How did you get such great distribution so quickly? That That's so un, unusual. You know, almost everything about the Wired launch story is unusual and aberrant, really. I mean, it just shouldn't have happened. <laughs> it's just none of it should have happened the way it did. It was all just sheer luck and goodwill and so forth. We had talked to IDG, which is a computer magazine publisher mm-hmm. run by the extraordinary and late Pat McGovern. And he didn't invest, but he allowed us to use his newsstand distribution guy as a freelance consultant. Wow. And so the guy was amazing at his job. And when he showed up, he'd say, I want to talk to you about Macworld and PC World and InfoWorld and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and I've got this other little thing called Wired. And so it sort of gave us the sheen of a big right. corporate partner without any equity ties or dilution associated with it. It was the best of all possible worlds. And Pat never wanted anything, never asked for anything in exchange. Really? And, you know, the extraordinary thing about Pat is, you know, I gather he experienced neurodegenerative disease and he and his wife created an extraordinary brain institute at MIT. And, you know, when I found myself in those hallowed halls for Neolife talking to his widow, she said, you know, he always loved Wired and he always thought you guys just really knew what was going on. And I was like, and we always thought he did. And the fact that you are now investing in the brain. And he used to say that as a publisher, how people think, how they absorb information and how they learn it and how we communicate it is, is what it's all about. So it's just a little homage there to, to Pat and his wife and, and the amazing work they're doing at the McGovern Brain Institute. I mean, did it just hit right away? Was it a slow build from there? What was your experience over the course of the next five years with Wired? I liken it to being strapped to the front of a rocket and blasted into (laughs) outer space. (laughs) So you're sort of the Richard Branson or whatever of Oh, yeah, exactly. Before the billionaires. (laughs) BB, uh, BB time. It was so much work. It was so hard. It was such a struggle. On the one hand, because we had no money and we were really understaffed and we had so much attention. And I remember actually Pat Keneally, who worked for Pat McGovern, said, I think you're going to be successful. The only question is, is it going to take you one year? Because that's going to cost a million dollars. He said, but if it takes two years before this market you're talking about matures, Mm -hmm. that's going to cost you an extra $5 million, you know? So either way, you're going to need more money. Right. And he was right. You know, we were... Literally, with the first issue, we had boxes of it. Nicholas Negroponte was our one of our seed investors, right, and right. he took this very personally. And he personally sent boxes to Creative Artist Agency, to the White House. You know, they were all over Harvard and MIT and Stanford and UC Berkeley. And then we were 
literally individually delivering boxes of books to places like the Consumer Electronics Show, which at the time had nothing to do with computers. Right, right. Um, Those were two different things. TVs, right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, we would go to the Sundance Film Festival. We were at design schools, you know, so it was design, film, you know, education, communications, computer science, and of course, business. It just exploded just immediately. And it was just such a rocket ride. So this was literally boxes of magazines in the trunk of your car and you go into the Sundance Film Festival hotels and just start distributing it. That's amazing. Exactly right. I mean, and it was back in the good old days when, you know, I could contact the organizers of, you know, an event like SIGGRAPH, you know, Mm -hmm. a special interest group, which is a subset of the, it's graphics oriented computer people. And I would say for your upcoming meeting, you know, will you distribute these magazines? And they'd say, sure. And, you know, that was back in the days when people would walk into a, a conference hall and go, oh, that's cool. And just take a bunch of paper and put it in their backpacks to carry home and read at home. (laughs) So that was great. We were on flights, commuter flights between New York and Washington and all that. The editorial quality of Wired Magazine was superb right from the start. How did you achieve that while you were doing all of this hustling for money and distribution and so on and so forth? We had an extraordinary team. I mean, it was just one of those dream teams. We used to liken it to Atari, you know, where Nolan Bushnell hired people like Steve Jobs and had this extraordinary team. You know, Wired was that. I first have to credit my partner, Louis Rossetto, you know, for his vision and his really clear and extremely demanding vision and work ethic. And then there was John Battelle, who had come out of journalism school. He was the only person on our team who had a journalism degree (laughs) or any professional journalism (laughs) background or experience. And he's gone on to do fabulous things in media, including, of course, The Recount. And then also Kevin Kelly, who I, I, you know, yes, he's a journalist and a writer, but he's really a thinker. Right. And I think it was the combination of the three of them who were so different, you know, coming from different parts of the country, different ages, different interests. And it was the three of them together. It was sort of like, you know, the Holy Trinity or something. Right, you know? right. And it really just created something bigger than the sum of its parts. And then we had John Plunkett and Barbara Coor, our creative directors, who were equally engaged, but naive about the computer industry. And so they would ask these really simple questions. I mean, John would say, wait, I don't understand. Are you saying? And then he would tell the same story with you know, graphics, with images and graphics. And so it just made this incredibly compelling package. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the podcast. What led to the sale of Wired in, I guess, 1998, right? Yeah, so the company was broken up, and the traditional media assets were sold to Condé Nast, which I likened to sending the magazine to live with its rich uncle in New York. (laughs) 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 And we held on to the internet business for another year or so, and then sold that. And we had what Pogo used to call insurmountable opportunities. There was so much happening. It was such an explosive time. We felt like we needed to move as quickly as possible to stake our territory in as many domains as possible. Within five years, we had three editions of the magazine, US, UK, and Japanese edition. We had a book line, our own imprint. We had a television program with MSNBC, and that's just half of the business. The other half of the business was 150 people, including 40 software engineers. 
who were literally pioneering web media. And so we were building the infrastructure and the tools in addition to staking out all the different content areas that we thought were of interest and that were an outgrowth of the Wired editorial mission. And so, you know, we ran around with our hair on fire all day long (laughs) and we were burning a lot of cash at the time. And each of the businesses that we had launched had their own timeline to profitability. Right. But, you know, it was just a bigger nut than we were able to raise successfully. And interestingly, this is a super interesting point, because it was that specific point in time where our business model was too far ahead of the market. Mm -hmm. And it was something that people really hadn't grasped, had not, you know, wrapped their heads around. We were working with Goldman Sachs and saying, you know, it's the stability and the revenue of traditional media assets with all of the upside potential and valuation multiples Mm -hmm. of an internet business. And we can use our properties to move audiences around all these different uh, business lines. It's a beautiful story. And of course, it's a story that resonated for a very long time. And it's a story that CNET was able to tell. But, you know, there was just a whole confluence of events that led that to not be a story that people could hear from us at that time. Our investors said, we see the value of your internet business and we see the value of, you know, the revenue and the stability of your traditional media assets, but combined, they're depressing each other. Right. Right. You know, the big idea was sell it off in pieces, which, you know, I think it was like we had the premier brand in that space at that time. Yes. We had the fastest search engine in the world. We were closing in on 50 million in revenues. I mean, it was just, it was an extraordinary property. And it was like the board of Nike saying, here, I've got this great idea. Why don't we sell footwear to Adidas and we'll sell apparel to Puma and we'll unlock all this value? And it was like, everyone went, oh, that's so smart. And everybody made a lot of money. And Lewis and I and the rest of us were sitting there going, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) You can't be serious. But you know, what can I say? Everybody made a lot of money. And we were left holding an empty bag at that point. You know, it's like, that was, that was everything. I mean, that was everything we thought about or cared about. And, you know, it was the most interesting story and it was the most interesting life. And you know, the good news is we had money and two babies. And so we had a really good time for a while. Right, but then right. I had to go look for a different platform. And, you know, Lewis had always loved chocolate, had always been obsessed with chocolate. And when a friend came and said he wanted to start a chocolate factory, I said, no, that's ridiculous. Are you <laughs> no. And Lewis said, great idea. <laughs> so the next thing I know, we're making chocolate on a pier in San Francisco, which was kind of crazy. How long did that go on? <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. The chocolate uh, factory. <laughs> it was amazing. How long? Oh, gosh. When did we start? That, that was another 10 years when all was said and done. I wasn't involved that long, but Lewis was. And I learned so much, surprisingly. And we had an amazing team. Also, just the all-star team of people. I remember we were pitching Starbucks. We got a big deal with them. And we were sitting in a conference room, like basically all day. And I could see Howard Schultz. He kept running up and down the staircase outside the conference room and he pokes his head and he goes, you guys have been in here all day. It must be awfully interesting. What are you doing? And so I like jumped up when I gave him this prototype and I was like, you know, this is our milk chocolate bar, which we called serious milk because Mm -hmm. it had a fairly high percentage of cacao Mm -hmm. blended with your, um, I forget what the coffee at the time was that they were promoting. 
And I said, and it tastes just like a Frappuccino. <laughs> and he tasted it and he was like, wow, that's really good. And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what was interesting about that business was that it got me thinking about food and food as medicine. Mm-hmm. And the molecule, the theobromine molecule, you know, triggers all of these neurotransmitters in your brain. Right. And it has cardioprotective factors. And, you know, it's good for headaches. It's good for diabetes. It's good for all these things that you would never know. Sadly, it provokes headaches in me. It provokes migraines in me, which made my time there difficult, (laughs) to say the least. But It was um, literally a headache. It was more than that. It was, yeah. But I learned a lot. And it got me thinking about nutrition. It got me thinking about molecules. I've never thought about molecules Mm -hmm. before. And then people were approaching us to use it not only for its inherent qualities, but also as a carrier for things like nutraceuticals and probiotics. And I was going through a little health crisis at the time, provoked in no small part by the fact that I was eating something that was killing me. But also, I was having all sorts of challenges. I was very open to the probiotics world and just kind of getting more and more interested in that and health in general, because my health was not good at the time and also my family's health. And so I had three octogenarians suddenly who all sort of had health crises at the same time. Right. You know, it's sort of like before you're a parent, you think everyone's single like you. And then once you become a parent, you think everyone's a a parent, everyone's a family. And you're either in the healthcare system or you're not. And I had never been until that point. And suddenly I was plunged into this morass. And I started thinking about mental illness, Mm -hmm. cognitive decline, especially, you know, dementia and just the epidemic that we were looking at that was going to be sweeping across the world. And the prognosis was just so bleak and the medication was so ineffective. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking there has to be a better way. And I was looking at mental illness and wondering about the connection with the gut and wondering about stressors as a provocation for mental illness. So I was thinking a lot about the brain. I was thinking about Pat McGovern. I was thinking about the leading edge and where's the research taking us? What does the future have in store? And how can technology change that? And that's how I started doing some reading and going to conferences. And, you know, so I was diving deep into the brain end of things, which is a hard place to start, A, and then B, a dear friend of mine, Ryan Phelan, who had been involved in consumer genomics. So she basically launched the first consumer genetic testing service long before 23andMe. Really? And she said, okay, let's talk about this, but you need to be looking at genomics too. You can't be looking at any of these things in isolation. And it was like so true. And yet the entire field is all about specialization. There's so much knowledge required that you can't possibly track it all. In biology and in medicine, you go deeper and deeper and deeper into your silo, essentially. And I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to get a PhD. I just got to go around and like be a journalist and ask people questions and read books and then say, hey, I don't understand. So I would go to these conferences and I would say, oh, you know, that's really interesting what you're saying about the, the genetics of this. Did you know that the neuroscience people are saying this? And maybe there's a connection there. And people with, you know, MDs and PhDs would look at me like, no, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, because they're the experts. Right. And what do I know? Right. I, I have zero credentials. You know, I'm just like a naive person stumbling in going, wow, this stuff is really cool. You know, right. And ultimately, I just couldn't help myself. 
I just, I, the media world was in so much tumult and it was just being disrupted every year by yet another technological innovation or platform or whatever. And yet, and yet, and yet, I just couldn't help myself. I was like, these are the most extraordinary people I've ever met. This right. is the most pivotal moment in history. And I haven't seen anything like this since, oh, wait, since Wired, since 25 <laughs> years ago. Gosh, this feels really similar. And it just was an extraordinary realization that for the second time in my life slash career, I was at the red hot center of something that has the ability to completely transform our world. Only in this case, it's not you know our institutions which is what happened with the digital revolution. It transformed our institutions. It transformed business and education and civic government and all the rest of that, entertainment, communications. This was going to transform us. This was going to go inside. This is going to transform our own brains, our own genomes, our microbiomes. You know, we were talking about engineering proteins and DNA and algae and fungus and viruses. And we were literally going to start tinkering with the building blocks of life. That's interesting. And out of coming to understand the importance of the genomic revolution and proteomics and stuff, you decided to create Neo.life? Exactly. Exactly. That's when I said I couldn't help myself. It's like, I got to tell this story. You know, I have to do this. I just, and I thought Josh Topolsky had just left his big media company, I'm blanking on its name at the moment, and had gone off to start the outline. So I think he, he raised like $5 million. Like I could do that. I could go raise $5 million. I could hire a bunch of people and, you know, see what sticks. And, and, you know, I started talking to people about doing that. And I realized that I would be spending my time raising money and fulfilling a business mandate. Right. And I didn't, want to do that. I just didn't want to do that. I just couldn't You'd bring myself to do that. that. I was like, well, A, I've already done it. And B, why should I do that now when what I really want to focus on is the story itself? And like, what is the story? And how do we present that story? And who do we present that story to? And at what level can we pitch it? And you know, that to me was the most interesting part of the problem to tackle. And I thought, you know what? I'll figure out the business piece later. Let's just focus on the story. Just do and it. Yeah do it. And so I went to talk to Ev Williams at Medium. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that he was going to turn this into a publishing platform and he was going to open it up to advertisers. And I said, great, that's perfect. You did the platform, you set me up with the distribution, and then I can use my relationships to get in the advertising. That's perfect. It was a perfect solution for me. And so based on that, I launched on the Medium platform and I chose Neo Life because we always wanted to do a magazine called Neo. <laughs> we actually had a business plan for a magazine called Neo back in the 90s, the early 90s. And Lewis was the one who said, you know, why don't you get the dot life domain? And it was like Neo Life. It's perfect. It was perfect. And so that's what we did. We just launched on the Medium platform and it's been an extraordinary ride. You know, Medium turned out to not be the right place right. to launch a media business. Right. So eventually we decided we needed our own website. And so we launched that in uh, 2019, I guess, 18 or 19. I don't know. It all blurs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we've been doing ever since. It's just developing the story and, you know, developing our sources, developing a, a network of writers. And, you know, it's been really interesting for me now to be the editor this time because I was on the business side last time. Right. So I'm really relishing that role. But 
it's hard because science writers are science communicators, and what they like to communicate is the wonder of science. Right. And that's not what Neolife is about. Neolife is about engineering life. And so it's about what happens when you bring an engineering mindset to biology. And so how is technology enabling us to understand new biological systems and dynamics? It's less about, oh, look at the funny little furry animal and its cute little thing. And look right. what's happening behind the screens. There's some of that. But you know, getting a writer who wants to come in and bring that deep knowledge and understanding of the biology, but also this openness to how we are manipulating that and how what we're discovering about it can then open up new doors. That's a different animal. And it's sort of, it's sort of a hybrid, but it's really super interesting. <laughs> I want to help our listeners here a little bit. If they go to neo.life, there's a little box where you can subscribe to Jane's newsletter, which I think comes out Friday, right? Thursday. Thursday. Thursday afternoon. And it gives a rundown of sort of the top stories, if you will. It's, it's a fantastic newsletter, and I urge all to subscribe. You're in what, year three of Neo.life? Year four. Year yeah, four. Yeah, we launched in March go. of 2017. What do you think the three biggest stories are out of the genomic revolution? What would those be? Wow, only three. I could do four. You could do four. Yeah, you can do six if you want. We got, oh, good. We got okay. all the time all right. in the world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. And that's kind of my problem. My dad used to say, you know, can I just pick one thing? And I'm just like, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> So obviously, the genomic revolution has, you know, this the sequencing of the human genome led to not only our ability to read it, but our ability to write it. Mm -hmm. And now we have the ability to edit it mm -hmm. in the form of CRISPR. Clearly, CRISPR is the biggest story since we launched Neolife. And my timing was impeccable because we were, we were right there when it was uh, yes. used for editing human embryos, which was the fall, I guess, of 2018. The Chinese scientist. Yeah. He, Zhang Qiu. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, that has just transformed the world of medicine in extraordinary ways, but it's also transforming the world of food because genetic manipulations that we can do to humans are also happening in plants and essentially enabling us to skip the amount of time it would take to do traditional breeding right. and just go straight to the end. Right. And so the big conversation there is around genetically modified foods and labeling. And if it's the same biological result, only we were able to skip, you know, 15 generations of crossbreeding, right. should that be labeled as frankenfood? Right. Or can we just put it out in the world and have a higher yield and longer shelf life and, you know, higher levels of nutrition and et cetera. So the genomic revolution in medicine, the genomic revolution in food are kind of two forks of the same basic idea. But, you know, we are now seeing CRISPR being used in humans for disease right. mitigation. We've had breakthroughs in liver disease and treatments for things like sickle cell anemia. We're looking at basically the ability to eliminate the monogenetic diseases. So anytime there's like one gene that triggers a genetic disease, we should be able to wipe those out within the next 20 years, which is kind of an extraordinary thing and really can't be understated. So that's huge and continuing to grow. You know, since CRISPR, there have been additional specific technical 
methodologies for editing genes. Mm -hmm. So there's the base pairs and then there's individual bases that can be edited. There's and there's going to continue to be lots of evolution there. And you know, there were existing technologies that use these bacterial pathways like zinc fingers and things like that. So all of those things are are getting more precise and will be used in more and more areas. So I think that's one. You know, there's been huge advances in imaging technology that is enabling us to see inside the brain in a field called optogenetics, which allows us to actually manipulate individual neurons. You know, you essentially dye these proteins with the fluorescent factor, and then you can use light to activate them. Mm -hmm. And that can turn neurons on and off. And that technology is being used in so many far-reaching applications. It's got potential for neurodegenerative diseases and, and tumors and all sorts of other possibilities. But most intriguingly, it's been shown to be effective in memories, in actually restoring lost memories or implanting new memories. I mean, it's kind of an extraordinary thing. And you know, the imaging technology is also enabling us to anticipate what somebody will want to communicate. And so there's extraordinary work done at UC Berkeley and also at MIT in helping to see what the brain wants to say Mm -hmm. without having to actually say it. And so there's great potential there for connecting with people um, who are locked in after a stroke, for instance, or potentially for people in comas to be able to communicate with us, you know, or to capture what's happening in somebody's dreams. I mean, all of these areas are just sort of extraordinary and mind-bending and, and exploding. As the editor of Neo.Life, how do you assign a story like that? Where do you find the writers to talk to the people at MIT and Cal Berkeley and the Brain Institute and the Allen uh, Institute? Who do you call to, yeah. to report that story? Those stories, yeah. I should say. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it starts with the with the research. And so we comb the literature and we see who's out there and what they're doing. And then, you know, there's the National Association of Science Writers, mm-hmm. which has been a fantastic resource for us. But, you know, there's also a whole bunch of writers who don't have full-time jobs anymore. They right. do not have the right. safety of a big media company. So there's a lot of freelancers a lot of talent. Uh, out there. And mm-hmm. Some I know from my Wired days, some I've met at conferences and events and so forth. And, you know, I hired an amazing editor named Jason Socrates Barty. And Jason himself has undergraduate and graduate degrees in bio and molecular physics and molecular biology. And he's also got a master's degree in science writing, but he's also a trained chef and he's got amazing, you know, multimedia skills. And he comes out of the nonprofit world. And, you know, he's worked at places like the American Institute of Physics and the Council on Foreign Relations, where he launched a publication on global public health. Our worlds had almost zero overlap. And, you know, while we struggle sometimes, because right. <laughs> I say, I think the headline should say this. And he goes, you can't say that, you know. <laughs> and he said, here's the right headline. I said, but that's boring. <laughs> right. Right. But, you know, we've been working together now since November. So it's been a little over uh, six, seven, eight months now. And I think that tension's really helpful to what we're doing. And he brings a whole completely different network of contributors to the table. And then we're finding new ones. You know, the good news is people are finding Neolife. Right. You know, uh, we have extraordinary people reading Neolife. Like 
when people are on vacation and I get their out of office messages, yeah. I get to see like who they are and right. where they work and right. what their jobs are. It's an incredible group of people doing everything from, you know, deep science research and, you know, protein design or cell mapping or brain imaging. But it's also like digital health executives or, and entrepreneurs, you know, it's food inventors. You know, we've got a bunch of media people. I can see how our, our stuff seeds right. stuff happening in mainstream media, which is super rewarding and a little frustrating. I can imagine. <laughs> and then futurists, <laughs> you know, we have a lot of futurists that, and trend watchers and people like that. All right, we're going to take a break here to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the podcast. I remember, I think it was in 2016, I, I had uh, lunch with Juan Enriquez, who's a mutual friend, I think. And he said, I'm thinking about writing a book about brain science. And so I said, you know, why would you do that? And he said, I think that brain science is where the genome was in 1999. Just We're just at the edge of extraordinary discovery and breakthroughs that we can hardly imagine. And, you know, this is it. This is what the Genome Project was in 99 Brain Sciences today. And I wondered if you shared that assessment. I absolutely do. And I saw Juan last month, earlier this month, actually. And, you know, how many years later is it? And he is deep into this. It's the hardest thing he's ever done. It's just so many layers of complexity. So yes, I completely agree. And, you know, I think the frontiers of neuroscience, sadly, they seem to keep getting pushed back, <laughs> you right. know, they're pushed forward, which isn't to say that we aren't learning a lot and don't have, you know, some extraordinary tools for learning more. It's just, there's a lot of work to do. And, you know, I think he's written, I don't know, about a thousand pages or something. So, you know, this will be the rest of his life. But it, it is truly extraordinary. I mean, Facebook, I don't know if you saw the headline, they made this big presentation a couple of years ago, Regina Dugan, who had come out of DARPA mm -hmm. and went to Facebook and sort of uh, took charge of the brain computer interface project at Facebook. And of course, they had acquired Oculus. This all was underneath the building eight umbrella of future projects at Facebook. And I saw an announcement because um, they had just published a paper or a paper had just been published that had been funded by Facebook, mm -hmm. I should say that. Uh, and then they announced that they weren't going to fund this anymore, that this was farther off than they thought. And I don't know if that means they've completely abandoned it or what. But, you know, the idea that they were going to be releasing some kind of device, brain computer interface that would allow you to type, you know, 100 words a minute with just using your brain waves, I think they've said is going to be more complicated than they thought. But having said that, you know, Brian Johnson at Kernel is getting ready to launch a consumer device that will enable you to do some level of interaction with your computer. And I don't really know a lot of the details about that, but there's devices in development as well that would be a combination of headphones. Mm -hmm. So you could put them on and wear them just like normal headphones, but they can also stimulate you to help your focus and concentration. You know, I think these things are fascinating and they might be novelties before they're really useful. Mm -hmm. I have a friend, Anna Maikas, who runs a company called Neuroelectrics. Right. And, you know, she's creating these devices that can read brain activity in ways that are therapeutic tools. 
and she's working in all sorts of clinical trials, you know, all around the world and making great strides. In fact, she just got a breakthrough designation from the FDA for her technology. So there's a lot happening in that field. And that's clearly, you know, the genomic revolution for medicine and food, uh, the neuroscience revolution, you know, which is really about sort of being able to read and also being able to, to write and stimulate the brain. And, you know, synthetic biology is this other part of it. And I touched on it with the food piece, but, you know, synthetic biology is the manipulation of the nucleases of DNA to basically build life from scratch. Mm -hmm. The applications there are extraordinary for opportunities to take industrial waste gases and like methane and carbon dioxide and convert those things into fabrics and food and fuel, you know, and they're also using things like mushrooms, you know, to create leather and other textiles. So that field has extraordinary potential. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar field right now, but it's going to explode. It's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and has a real potential to help us clean up the planet and transition from, you know, fossil fuels and, and other industrial processes to biological processes, you know, to things that are in conjunction with nature, as opposed to, you know, the extractive economy that we have built so far. You know, those three right there are the big three that we track, but there's a fourth one, which is sort of orthogonal to all of these things, or it's it vectors through all of these in some way. And that is the anti-aging movement and research. You know, we're talking about medicine for the most part, or, you know, materials and food and energy. But the anti-aging world is also, I think, really ripe for explosion. We've got a lot of molecules now that are showing positive impacts in terms of literally reversing aging Mm -hmm. in mice and other life forms. You know, we just did a story, therapeutic plasma exchange. Yes, yes, right. Which, in fact, we're doing, well, I'll explain what that is first, and then I'll say what, what is interesting about it. You know, 10 years ago or so, 2005, there's some scientists at Berkeley, Irina and Michael Convoy, who published a paper on symbiosis which was basically sewing together the circulatory systems of an old mouse and a new mouse Mm -hmm. and seeing what happened. And what they saw was the old mouse got young again and the young mouse got old again. You know, the fur, the wayfinding, you know, just the overall vitality of the young mouse was compromised, whereas the old mouse was able to show more energy and the coat got shinier and was able to make its way through the maze better, et cetera. So based on that, you know, this whole idea of parabiosis took off and there was a company that actually launched and was doing these treatments where they would literally do infusions of young plasma Mm. into older people's bloodstreams. And ultimately back in, I think, 2019, they were shut down by the FDA and that was stopped. But the research continues and the convoys have been publishing papers where they, they say, okay, it's less about bringing in the stuff from a young person. And it's more about getting rid of the old cells, the dead cells that accumulated in our bloodstream. So if you could do, you know, get rid of the senescence, Mm -hmm. then that alone would be a health benefit. Our writer, who's actually a scientist and entrepreneur in his own right, and his wife go to 
a clinician in San Francisco named Dobri Kiprof and experienced this process, which is called apheresis, which is a, a known process. It's been used for years. It's FDA approved and it's used in autoimmune disorders mm-hmm. and are doing a observational study right now where you basically transfuse your blood. They take out your plasma and they replace it with saline and albumin and basically get rid of the old stuff that's accumulated and pump in fresh fresh saline and albumin in addition to some growth factors that right. factors right. which I, I right. haven't been able to get detail on yet you know Lou says he feels better after four treatments but his wife who had suffered from sepsis and had inflammation and migraines and energy and mood problems says she feels completely transformed. Really? And yeah, we literally just published the story a few weeks ago. I had dinner with them on Saturday night and they said that after four treatments, her blood tests have come back normal for the first time in 10 years. Wow. And she feels great. So she's done. She said, I don't need to do any more treatments. I feel great. Wow. So I've been talking to people like George Church and Aubrey de Grey about this experience and saying, so what do you see happening? And, and, you know, what do you think is, are, have we found a way to turn the clock back? Have we found, you know, this process and, you know, both Aubrey and George are very enthusiastic about it. And, you know, George was saying that you will find in another year, we're going to publish about molecules that we can add in along with the saline and the albumin that are really going to make a difference. Wow. So it's an incredible time where it just kind of blows your mind that this is where we are. I'm afraid that we've run out of time. We're definitely going to have you back to to sort of do the next chapter. Great. But I cannot, thank you. I can't thank you enough for doing this. And I urge all of our listeners to go to neo.life, you know, have that bookmark that, but make sure to subscribe to Jane's newsletter, which comes out on Thursdays and which is spectacular. Jane, thank, thank you so you. much for doing this. My pleasure. And can I tell listeners there's also a book? So we published a book that basically touches on all the different topics of our beat, mm-hmm. if you will, with short essays by scientists and science fiction writers and artists that basically um, represent 25 visions for the future of our species. So that you can buy on our website. It's called Neolife, 25 Visions for the Future of Our Species. <laughs> you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on our website. and. Uh, It's an easy and accessible dive into this extraordinary world that we see. Terrific. Thanks again. Thank you so much, John. Talk soon. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer is the great Simran Singh. Thanks for listening.